True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 30th case together. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on YouTube, on the True Crime Fix channel, so please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. So that's the end of month one of lockdown for me, and I've actually found myself busier work-wise being at home than when I'm in the office. I'm not going to go on about the current state of things at the moment as you're probably getting as bored as I am, but... I do have to point out a few things. Firstly, I just want to say a thank you to all of the key workers or essential workers who are currently keeping the world running. You are all amazing, and especially all of the medical people and first responders. I really do salute you and applaud everyone for risking their lives to keep us safe. Secondly, the spirit of some of the people in this country. For example, some of the people outside of the UK may not be aware of Captain Tom Moore. 99 years old and wanted to raise some money for the NHS by walking 100 lengths of his 25 metre back garden. His target was £1,000, but the response was amazing, leading to £25 million being raised at the time of recording. He is 100 on the 30th of April this year. Sir, you are a true British hero. Anyway, when all of this started, I was actually in Madrid, and it is from there where our case comes from today. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is your true crime fix. I am your host Steve. And this episode has been dedicated to the memory of Eva Blanco Porge. Eva Blanco Porge was born on the 17th of February 1981 in Madrid, Spain. She was the eldest of three children, her sisters being Rebecca and Maria, born to Olga Porge and Manuel Blanco, who was a tow truck driver for the Automobile Aid Association. The family lived in the suburb of Algete, which is 25 miles northeast of Madrid city centre. The population as of the last census in 2018 was just over 20,000, but at the time of the crime, there was only 12,000 inhabitants. There is not a lot of information about what Eva was like as a child, All the testimony of her family states that she was very family-orientated and never missed an event that they planned. She was a polyvalent unified baccalaureate, which is the Spanish term for a GCSE student in the UK, or grades 9 to 11 in the US, and she was studying at the Gustavo Aldofo Becker Institute. Eva's friends described her as shy and introverted. 
she had been dating a local boy by the name of Miguel, but the relationship did not last. At 7pm on the 19th of April 1997, Eva left her house on the Valderay estate. She had arranged to meet her best friend, Tanya Rodriguez Oranaz, and her sister, Vanessa. The three friends went to the sweet shop, Verona, in Limon Verde Street, where they stayed for more than two hours. At a quarter to ten, they reached the tennis courts next to the school in the Valderay estate. There was a big bottle of Calimocho and more teenage friends to have fun. Eva decided that she was not really in the mood to stay out, so at 11.30pm she finished the Calimocho that she was drinking, a Spanish drink of half and half cola and red wine, and decided that she was going to make the short journey back to her family house, which was on Calle de Carmen Conde. One of her friends accompanied her for a kilometre until they got to their house and Eva only had 700 metres to return to her home. They left each other at around 11.45pm. Eva had told her family that she would be home around midnight in order to take the family dog out for a walk before going to bed. So at 1.30am, when she did not arrive home, Eva Blanco's family began to worry. The young woman was always very punctual, so it was not like her to be late. Her father Manuel called the parents of several friends of Eva to see if she had gone there. They all said the same thing, that they had left the bar at 11.45pm and her friend Vanessa had accompanied her to the gates of the Valderay estate, about 700 metres from her home. According to her friends, Eva was using a path which was a shortcut to avoid passing through the town centre. A route which many of the students at her school took to get to classes. At around half past two in the morning, the search for Eva began in earnest. Friends, neighbours and Manuel's nephew, who was an officer with the local police force, mobilised into teams to look in different areas, first of which being the local parks inside the town. Following that, they went to look in an area adjacent to the neighbouring town of Fuerta El Sa de Harama, which was just over four kilometres away, but where her ex-boyfriend was from. Eva's father visited the local Civil Guardia station, a branch of the Spanish National Police, 15 times, as it was at the end of their road during the night she had gone missing. But they refused the report each time, due to her age and the length of time that she had been missing. The guard on duty, suggesting that all kids her age were into drugs and she was probably passed out in a doorway somewhere. When Eva had still not been found by 8am, the municipal police escalated the missing persons report to the civil guardia, who now accepted the case. The tension was starting to increase amongst her relatives. Olga, Eva's mother, was the most pessimistic. She knew that something was wrong because she knew her daughter and she knew that she couldn't go so long without saying where she was. Manuel also took his anger out on the police, criticising them for not searching the rural roads or using vehicles in the search before sunrise, except for a 20-minute run around Valderay where they lived. He claimed that they did not do it earlier because they did not have any diesel in their vehicle. The civil guardia denied this accusation and said that it was customary to wait some hours between the missing persons report and their search. At noon the following day, 
Eva had still not been found, so the family requested help from the media. Tele Madrid, which was the local television station for the city, was asked to broadcast an image of Eva. The tragic news for the family was that by that time, it was too late. At 9am on the 20th of April 1997, two older brothers from Ahalvir, another suburb of Madrid, 10 kilometers south of Valheti, were out walking through an area known as Las Pascaras, or the fishing grounds, when they found the body of a girl. Due to its proximity to the road, it was initially thought that the young woman had been run over. The body had been found on the side of the road near a roundabout on the M100, which connected the neighbouring town of Belvis de Harama with Cabenya. The young woman's body had been found on the access road, which was under construction and therefore not open to the public. The young woman was dressed in jeans, a dark sweater and hiking boots. It was Eva Blanco. Her body was prone, face down in a ditch, and still fully dressed. The only thing that she had had removed was one sleeve of the jacket that she was wearing. Eva was stabbed 19 times in the back of the head, neck and upper back. The attacker had used a knife which the blade was between 8 to 10 centimetres in length and 1 centimetre in width. The location that she had been found was approximately 7 kilometres from Eva's house. The area was renowned for being used by teenagers at the time who were searching for privacy in their cars from extracurricular activities. It had rained heavily the night before, which led to mixed fortunes for the crime scene investigators. Due to the terrain of the area, the police were able to establish a brief theory as to what had happened from imprints which had been left on a sandy bank from the main road. First, they knew that the perpetrator, from prints found close to the body, was wearing moccasin-style shoes which are like a suede loafer, almost like a slipper, with a leather sole. The suspect's shoe size was a European 42, which is an 8.5 in UK sizes, or a 9 in US. But the downside was that as the body had laid out in the rain, any obvious evidence on the body had been washed away. One of the wounds appeared to be more of a slash than a stab, indicating that that one may not have occurred with the others. As it was on her left side, and due to where the footprint started, right next to the road, it was suggested that Eva and her attacker were still in a vehicle when the strike occurred. So if all the indication pointed to Eva sitting in the passenger seat, Did this mean that she knew her killer? From the evidence found at the scene, it appeared as though she ran down the sandy embankment, but the perpetrator caught her, resulting in the remaining wounds. At half past three in the afternoon, the civil guardia broke the tragic news to Olga and Manuel that their daughter had been found. As the news broke around the town, Eva's friends and neighbours gathered on Calle de Carmen Conde. By seven in the evening, more than 200 people gathered in silence in front of Eva's parents' home to pay respects to the teenager. The autopsy of Eva Blanco took place on the 21st of April. It was confirmed that she had been stabbed in the back 19 times before dying from blood loss at around 4am. The murder weapon was a Navaja, 
which is traditionally a Spanish folding knife which fit the dimensions found at the crime scene. The majority of the stab wounds were superficial, whilst the first injury, the slash, was deep and may have been fatal even in the absence of all the others. Eva's hymen had been torn, meaning that she was a virgin before she was attacked, and the same man's semen was found in her mouth, vagina and underwear. A red fibre was also retrieved from Eva's mouth, and subsequently identified by the Catalonia Textile Museum and the Documentation Centre as belonging to a common type of car upholstery, confirming that Eva had been in a vehicle after her disappearance. The police announced that they were tracking a blue car that drove through Alhete on the night of the crime. Several people had come forward to report that on the night Eva had gone missing, a suspicious blue car was driving the streets in the area, stalking another girl. This young woman remembered. It was 12 o'clock at night, and when I was going home, they followed me. I had to run while they yelled at me. The girl who did not want to reveal her name out of fear, insisted that one of the occupants of the car was a blonde boy in his twenties. Other residents of the same neighbourhood where the girl lived also remembered a blue car prowling around the area. No one, however, could give the licence plate of that car, only that it was a Renault. The Civil Guardia suspected that the murderer may have been a person from Eva's friendship circle and was someone who had taken advantage of their relationship to get her into the vehicle and take her to the crime scene. They also interviewed a shocked and devastated Miguel, Eva's ex-boyfriend, but he was struck off the list of potential people of interest as he had an alibi. On the 23rd of April 1997, Eva's funeral took place at the Asociación de Nuestra Señora Iglesia, a 16th century Catholic church in Aljete. The funeral procession arrived at the church at around 11.15am. At that time, the plaza and the church were packed more than 2,000 people gathered to pay their respects. Angel Monterosso, the pastor of Alhete, received Eva's parents at the door. Olga nearly passed out with grief as they brought the coffin into the church. She had to be supported by her husband. Numerous students from the Gustavo Aldolfo Becker Institute were crying inside. At approximately 12.20, the mass concluded and most of the attendees walked the kilometre and a half from the church to Cementero de Alheti, where she was buried. The next update in the investigation was on the 26th of May, when the police gave the following statement. After the first clues, we had predicted an early arrest of the murderer but I must say that we've been wrong. Although the possibility that the murderer is a close friend of the victim is still being investigated, we have opened our field of investigation. However, things were still moving along incredibly slowly. In December 1997, Olga found two notebooks hidden between a couple of chest of drawers in her daughter's room. They were labelled 9596 and 9697 with relation to the corresponding years and were handwritten by Eva right up until the day of her murder. Many of the journal pages contain nothing but Eva and Miguel, the name of her ex-boyfriend, repeated over and over in different pen colours. However, the last entry that the teenager wrote 
in her secret diary hours before her death was, I will only say, I will only write one thing. Miguel TQ by Evita. But two pages before her passing, on the other hand, Eva and Miguel had been replaced with Eva and 343110. Was this a code for a new boy in her life? All attempts to discover the meaning of 343110 were unsuccessful, with some theories revolving around the fact that 34 is the phone prefix of Spain and 110 is Alhetti's postal code. Eva's father believed that it was the number of a pager given in a Coca-Cola promotion at the time, but he was unsure. This lead, however, proved fruitless. In fact, there were no updates and the trail went cold for nearly two years. On the 27th of October 1999, and with there still being no breakthroughs in the case and the trail going cold, the mayor of Alhete, Jesus Herrero, took an unusual step to discover the killer of Eva. Jesus Herrero, with the support of the local neighbourhood groups, announced that he was going to issue a request for all men over 16 to voluntarily submit a DNA test providing either saliva or a hair sample. This analysis would then be compared to the sample that the civil guardia had collected from Eva's body. The mayor estimated that 5,000 men over the age of 16 were registered in the municipality, and he wanted to test them all. He said, First, we are going to contact the courts to find out how we have to collect the evidence. You don't even need to draw blood. A hair or a little saliva is enough. At the launch of the initiative, the mayor and Manuel Blanco were the first two to give their DNA. A number of local men willingly gave their DNA, but as you would expect, the guilty party was not amongst them. Not everyone agreed with this initiative. The magistrate of the fifth section of the provincial court, Arturo Beltran, was the toughest and called the initiative by the mayor demagogic bullshit. He said it was like he was trying to introduce the culture of suspicion. The administration of justice, the police and democratic states cannot spend their time on nonsense like this, he said. A DNA test takes at least three days to give results and its approximate cost ranged between 40,000 and 150,000 pesetas, so basically between 208 pounds and 780 pounds. By the 29th of November, 2013 local residents had voluntarily provided a DNA sample, but alas, there were no suspects, as there was still an argument in the courts about the cost. 100 million pesetas was the prediction to test all of these swabs, which is just over £520,000, and the courts were saying that there was no real justification for the costs. The civil guardia, on the contrary, believed that the tests on the samples of the volunteers would help with the investigation. To the point that it already had a plan in place as to where to obtain the necessary 100 million pesetas from by diverting the collection of traffic fines and the collection of vehicle registration fees that the traffic department paid at the time to the Ministry of Interior and divert it to the case. These tests, though, would not start until February 2001, nearly four years after the murder, and even then not all of the samples were tested. April 2007 was the 10-year anniversary of the murder and the civil guardia had not been able to identify the murderer despite the resources that had been dedicated to the case. 
I just want to get ahead and have him answer me. Why? Why did you do this to my little girl? Olga told El Pace newspaper. The one who did it is a coward. He had the courage to kill a defenceless girl, but has been unable to surrender. I only live to know what he looks like. If he had turned himself in, he would have been free by now and we would be at peace. More than 30 detectives were said to have worked the case, which 10 years later had not yielded any results. The police were still looking on the theory that Eva was killed by someone who knew her. She had shown no signs of defensive wounds. The case had been reviewed by all the new homicide lead detectives the department had had over the decade, and it had still remained unsolved. A spokesperson for the Civil Guardia said, Every time that there is a similar case, we have asked for all the evidence. We have even contacted the FBI and the Ertzanza, who were the Basque Autonomous Police, and yet still nothing. A specialist from the University of Santiago de Compostela had offered a new lead, however. Due to advances in science, they had again analysed the DNA of the semen and had determined that the suspect was a man of non-European origin. But again, nothing. The case went quiet for a further six years. Sixteen years had now passed since the murder and the police were running out of time. The statute of limitations on a murder conviction in Spain is 20 years, meaning that they only had four more or the case would never be solved. The civil guardia decided to press the accelerator again. In all this time, they had investigated 1,503 people and had collected DNA from a further 208 men from the town and surrounding suburbs. The police had grouped the investigation of people into three categories. The first, second and third circle. The first circle was all of the people who were known to be close to Eva, so people for example such as Miguel, her ex-boyfriend, and Manuel, her father, as well as other close males in her life. The second circle were all of her acquaintances, the people who knew of Eva, so anyone who attended the Gustavo Alfredo Becker Institute, and people who were friends of friends. The police were now on to the third circle. Everyone from Alhete with a background had now been investigated. People who were fined for possession of bladed weapons and even prisoners who were at the time on prison permits. Then there was the enigma of 343110. The police still believed that these six figures represented a name, a secret that she had taken to the grave. No one in Eva's inner circle knew anything about it. On the 26th of April 2013, Spanish free-to-air channel La Sextia's investigative show Equipo de Investigación aired a programme about the case. The show was titled Eva, an Expediente Arbito. Eva, a cold case. The programme reinvestigated the known evidence and included interviews with Eva's parents, friends, teachers, officers working the case and Vincente Garrido Henaves, a psychologist and criminologist who had gained notoriety when he had helped identify serial killer Joaquin Fernandez Ventura in Castellón in 1998. In the episode... The psychologist disagreed with the civil guardia's theory that the murderer was a secret boyfriend of Eva, arguing that she would not have agreed to meet a lover 
15 minutes before her curfew because of the risk of exposing such relationship. His criminal profiler was a stalker who was not known or barely known to Eva. The lack of defensive wounds could be explained because of the victim being threatened before agreeing to have sex with the attacker. The criminal would be of low intelligence, uneducated, with a low skilled profession and emotionally immature, since he sought sex with a teenager rather than a woman closer to his age. He probably had no family because they would have noticed him coming in late and inquired to him about it. It was also possible that he had continued his criminal career elsewhere in Spain and that he was in prison for other attacks. As a result of the show, the police had a breakthrough. After watching the programme, a woman reported to authorities that she was able to remember a man of around 35 years of age and a girl in a light-coloured Renault. The Madrid Civil Guardia Command were able to release a computer-generated portrait of the person who they believed to be involved in the murder of Eva Blanco. The suspect had the following characteristics. It was male, between 35 and 40 years old, with a height of between 170 and 180 centimetres. He was described as having a thick complexion and suspected to be around 75 to 80 kilos, with brown hair short and spiky on top. The square jaw on a tanned face with sunken black eyes wearing a white shirt and a v-neck sweater. As a result of its distribution, the Civil Guardia received dozens of calls in addition to hundreds of emails with regards to people who they believed it could be and they had to investigate each one. And it was all thanks to this person who saw a man on a highway which was under construction at around 8 in the morning on the day that Eva was murdered. A suspect walking in the rain heading towards a white Renault. Although the timing was slightly off, it was possible that the exact hour had been forgotten over the decade and a half that had passed since. At the end of 2013, a new revision of the Siemens DNA narrowed down the identity of the donor to a man of North African descent. The civil wadia proactively searched the number of men that hit that demographic and there were 300 North African men in Al Hete in 1997. Those that they were able to trace, they contacted to provide voluntary samples of their DNA. The response was overwhelmingly positive, even though many had left the town and even the country in the intervening years. One of the men that they received a sample from was one of Eva's former neighbours, Fawed Shell, who was now living in the south of France. When his DNA was tested, it revealed that Fawed Shell's DNA shared his Y chromosome and over 97% of his nuclear DNA with the killer. It was a familial match, and not only a familial match, but this was only possible if both men were siblings. The issue now was that Fawed Shell had two siblings. One of Fawed's brothers was living in Murcia, in the south of Spain, 127 kilometres along the coast from the town of Benidorm, which is popular amongst British partygoers in the summer. This brother had never resided in Alhete and willingly provided his DNA, which produced an identical result. Therefore, a European arrest warrant was issued for the third Shell brother, Ahmed Shell Jerzy. On the 1st of October 2015, 
Ahmed was arrested outside his workplace in Boussançon, France, during a joint intervention of the civil wadia and the French gendarmerie. Boussançon is a town which may be familiar to regular listeners of this podcast. So what is known about Ahmed Shell? He was born on the 1st of March 1963 in Taser, a town in northern Morocco, 77 miles east of the city of Fez. During his years in Spain, he lived in Cobenya, although he had a residence in Alhete, like his brother in the same neighbourhood as Eva's family. Shell was never listed as an official resident of Alheti because he and his wife lived in a caravan parked in a plant nursery where Shell worked as a delivery man and which had been lent to him by Shell's employer. Shell's residence was next to the Paracuayos de Harama to Fuente El Sass Road and was approximately four kilometres away from the murder scene. He had left Spain in 1999 after divorcing his first wife, who was significantly younger than him, and moved to pierre le Varans, a town almost 50 kilometres west of Boussançon. He was now remarried to a Moroccan national and had children with her. When the crime was committed, he was 34 so not far off from the age that the witness had suggested. One thing that was revealed was that he had committed the crime whilst his wife was five months pregnant with their second child. The police did not believe that Shell knew either, but the motive was not ruled out that on the night of the crime, Shell was looking for a young woman because he could not have sexual relations with his wife and that he was behind some of the other unresolved sexual assaults, like the one that cost Eva Blanco her life. Despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Shell still pleaded his innocence, telling the Boussançon prosecutor Jean-Francois Perretier, shortly after he was arrested, that on the night that Eva had died, two individuals forced him to approach her in a field and ejaculate on her. He claimed that he had gone for a walk in the area when he came across the two individuals who grabbed him, took him by force and made him masturbate. He made the comment after they had informed him that he was being detained as an alleged perpetrator of the crime because DNA placed him at the scene of the murder. But his ex-wife, Incarnacion Cantos, shed some light on the evening. She said... I quote, Two individuals, and he hasn't said who was with him. They were his brothers, Mustafa and Fawad. The three used to go out together at night on weekends in and around Alhete. The night of the murder of Eva, they were all three with her in a disco. The young woman, according to her version of events, was in the room with her ex-boyfriend, with whom she had had an argument and struck up a conversation with the three brothers. Encarnacion Cantos added that as far as she knows, neither the police nor the civil guardia had ever spoken to Ahmed's brothers. Not with me either, she said. She did however admit in the same interview with El Paisi that Shell became aggressive when he drank. Former female customers that the newspaper interviewed also remembered him as a pervert, the kind that makes you feel bad whenever he's near. Shell attempted suicide in the cell of his detention centre on the 5th of October. The gendarmes had already predicted this as a possibility and taken away all the objects that he could use to self-harm. Still, he used an object predicted to be a small piece of iron, and tried to cut his jugular. Several cuts were made to his neck, but the intervention of the officers prevented his suicide. On the Wednesday morning, the 7th of October, 
a hearing was held in Boussançon to finalise the transfer of Shell to Spain. In the presence of three judges, a prosecutor and two lawyers, Shell accepted his deportation to Spain to stand trial. Shell's acceptance of deportation meant the proceedings were sped up and instead of a number of weeks of legal arguments, he could be moved within a week. Shell arrived at the Torrijon de Ardos airbase, located 22 kilometers from the city of Madrid at 1.14pm on Friday the 9th of October. From there, he left in a prison van, escorted by civil guardia, with sniper rifles in off-road vehicles in case anybody decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands. Instead of leaving the airport through the main gate, the one that goes out to the Barcelona motorway, they did so through the back to transfer Shell to the Trey Cantos headquarters, just over 35 kilometres away. He arrived there at 4.15pm. Homicide officers took his fingerprints and took his photograph for the file. They also fed him water, juice, condensed milk, cookies and energy bars before taking him to court. The entourage left again for court in the street of Puerto de Neverserada in Torrijon. Shell entered the court at 4.45pm escorted by two civil guardia. He looked calm and walked through without hesitation, staring blankly. After 18 years, the alleged murderer of Eva Blanco was finally going to be brought to justice. While being led into the court by the agents, some people who had gathered around the judicial headquarters began to insult him and call him murderer, murderer. Let them leave it to me for a while and you'll see how I will solve everything, one man shouted. This court hearing was the equivalent of an arraignment where the judge, the prosecutor, the lawyer representing Eva's parents and the defence attorney were the only ones present. Shell still protested his innocence but did agree that they performed a DNA test providing a swab of saliva, bearing in mind the case at the moment was still heavily reliant on a familial match. The prosecution team asked for him to be held on remand, while the defence lawyers requested his release until the result of the DNA tests was known. The judge agreed with the prosecution's request and ordered provisional detention. Just after 7pm, Shell was transferred to the Soto del Real prison, where he was remanded on custody pending trial. On the 13th of October 2015, the civil guardia confirmed that Ahmed Shell's DNA was a 100% match with the sample which had been found on Eva's body. As a result, he was moved to the Alcala Mechal prison after the Torrijon judge decreed his admission to a provincial jail. On the 19th of October, Shell launched an appeal to his own detention, attacking Eva's character in the process. In the appeal, it was pointed out that throughout the significant paperwork of the investigation, the testimonies of the family and close friends of the victim have always indicated that Eva was afraid to go with strangers, and even more so, if the individual was of another race. But also in the case file, there was evidence to suggest that the detectives looked into at the beginning of the investigations about the possible involvement of Eva with a neo-Nazi organisation, Basis Autonomous, which was active when the murder was committed. Apparently, Neo-Nazi symbols and drawings appeared in the young woman's diaries, but none of her known friends with whom she surrounded herself had anything to do with the ideology or knew of her alleged belief. Basis Autonomas was a group which was founded in Madrid in 1983, 
the group sought to inaugurate a much greater youth participation into far-right politics. Membership was largely made up of football hooligan ultras and racist skinheads who operated in small cells. Basis Autonomous were finally disbanded as an organisation in the mid-1990s. However, given the cell-based nature of the movement, which took its organisational, if not its ideological impetus from anarchism, some individual cells continued to exist for some time after this. Ahmed Shell's first wife also changed her story, and on the 21st of October, declared that he was not behind the murder of Eva, and said that there were several people who were involved for sure. She also claimed that Shell was home between 10 and 11pm on that night. She told the TVE programme La Mañana, I quote, It was not too late because I was pregnant with Karim. He told me that he had come from having a drink with some friends and that some kids had robbed him. They wanted to kill him, but he didn't tell me anything else. But this was the penultimate twist in the case. Unfortunately, the final one meant that Eva's parents would never get answers and ultimately never get justice. On the 29th of January 2016, Ahmed Shell committed suicide in his cell in the Alcala Meco prison. He had hung himself with his shoelaces. His body was found at 8 in the morning when officials opened the cells. From the time that he had entered Alcala Meco prison, on the 9th of October until the 16th of December, Shell had been on suicide prevention protocol, which involved, among other measures, being accompanied by a trusted inmate assigned by the prison management. However, the doctors and psychiatrists at the prison considered that this protocol could be lifted on the 8th of January. On the 15th of February 2016, upon receiving Shell's death certificate and there being no other suspects, the court closed the case. Shell will never officially be found guilty for his crime. As for Eva, she would have been 40 next February. I will leave you with a quote from El Pace newspaper not long after Eva was found and I think it sums up this case perfectly. Olga's grief, also her rage, is that she will never know what her daughter Eva would have been like when she was 17 nor 18, or if she would study and get a career, get a boyfriend, or make her a grandmother. So that's it for this week. Before I go on to the normal promotion, I just want to let you know what's going on moving forward. So that was my last international case for this season. My final five are all based in the UK, starting with a tragic story which some of you might know a little bit about. I just want to thank everyone for their ongoing support with the podcast, especially Ian who never fails to recommend the podcast on Twitter. Just to also let you know that I'm not going to take the normal four week break until we're out of lockdown, it doesn't seem worth it. So. If we get past the traditional 12k season, I'm going to continue releasing. This is where I'm also looking to take case recommendations for the next season. I think that planning this season out the way I did has really helped me with the motivation to continue. So if you do have any recommendations, send them through the contact us page on the website. If you do enjoy the show, then please spread the word on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. And of course, the show is now on YouTube. If you do enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod 
That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, where I post links to the episodes and anything show related. But do come over and join the fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases, and generally have a bit of fun as well. You can also visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk for show links and episode information, etc. And also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. There are various tiers on there, so please, any assistance with the costs of running the show is really appreciated. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. I'm just learning how to use Instagram properly, so we'll start posting more on there in the future. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone <laughs>